Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to The Relentless Truth. For more information, go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. You can find us also wherever you go to get your podcasts. My guest today is a very special guest. His name is Josh Shepard. He is a freelance journalist. He writes on culture, faith, and public policy issues for media outlets, including The Roy's Report, Family Theater Productions, Christianity Today, The Stream, The Federalist, and What's on Disney+. Plus. He's a graduate of the University of Colorado, and he previously worked on staff at the well-known Heritage Foundation and Focus on the Family. You can find him on Twitter at Josh M. Shep. Josh and his wife, Terry, live in the Washington, D.C. area with their son and daughter. Josh, it is such an honor to have you here. Welcome. John, it's a real pleasure. I've listened to the podcast and thrilled to get to be a guest. All right. Well, I've got to ask you, because a, a large segment of this Relentless Truth audience includes young people, and we don't often encounter someone with your experience in journalism. And so I'm wondering, who's also a Christian, and I wonder if you would just, I know this can be challenging for a journalist to talk about themselves, because that's not what you do, but would you please just share your life story, as much of it as you're comfortable sharing? Absolutely. John, I, I kind of have, I think, an unconventional route to doing unconventional work. So I think sometimes you talk to people and you hear about their career path and it's kind of like, oh, well, do exactly what I did because this is the way everyone should do it. And I, I don't believe that. I think, you know, that God gives us all unique callings and unique paths to uh, where we end up in life. And I think, you know, for me, I, I've gotten to do this interesting variety of work. I do public policy, you know, kind of writing, as you've mentioned, I, that's, I, I just did a major story, for instance, on the big Dobbs pro-life court case being heard December 1st, a very big, significant thing happening at the Supreme Court here in the Washington, D.C. area. But I've also, you know, gotten to interview some Oscar-winning actors recently, working on some stories related to some films coming out around Christmas. I'm working on a story about YouTube channels for toddlers, but one outlet wants that one. And I'm also working on some Giving Tuesday campaigns for a couple of different nonprofit groups. Wow. So, you know, there's a, a variety of work in there and it's not all journalism, but there's, that, that's certainly now the bulk of what I get to do. I grew up certainly with a passion for writing. I was a homeschooled kid in the Texas suburbs. I actually have 10 siblings. So there's 11 kids total then. So the, you have the girls at the oldest and youngest, and then there's nine boys in the middle. So we're Dallas area. My folks are still there and a lot of my siblings are there in the Dallas area. But yeah, it was wonderful growing up doing chores and all that kind of whole routine is that you have uh, as a homeschooled family. And, you know, I think homeschooling sometimes once you get to, to learn to read, it, it can be kind of self-taught to a degree, to a little bit. Degree. I mean, my dad's a doctor. He's a medical doctor. So he would help us with science and math at night. And my mom was a former English teacher and had done. So I think the reading aspect and other aspects of it, she really was, was leading on. So it was a wonderful experience. I, I wrote a monthly newsletter about, about family events, uh, you know, so you can kind of see my writing experience even from a young age when I was probably, you know, 10 years old. And then as, as getting into my teen years, 
I actually interviewed contemporary Christian music artists and I wrote reviews of their albums and yeah, uh, that was were published on an early website back in like 95, 96 timeframe throughout the late 90s. So it was fun to kind of be part of the of internet journalism even back then. I went to a couple different schools for college, started at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, finished up at University of Colorado in Colorado Springs uh, because I I actually went to what's called what was called it's an institution that doesn't right now exist, but the Focus Leadership Institute was a one semester program that sort of had their own faculty mm-hmm. there at Focus and the Family in Colorado Springs. And so I went to that one fall, I think during my junior year, and I loved it so much and connected there so much that I ended up working for them pretty quickly. Um, and so I worked, I ended up transferring over to University of Colorado, uh, UCCS in the Springs, working during the day at Focus and working at night, finished up my degree. So it was great. I managed marketing for Adventures in Odyssey. I uh, got to meet the actors behind the show and still know and in touch with a lot of the producers and people who are just, uh, you know, uh, it's an amazing crew there at Focus. So, and I honestly worked for some people in marketing as well who were top of the line people. They have learned a lot about the whole marketing stuff. So I went from there. I really felt though God calling me, I guess it was in 2008 and 09. Uh, I think that's correct. Yeah. As we saw a lot of transition happening in the nation, of course, President Obama and his campaign. I started to get more involved and interested in politics and policy. And so really felt that I was calling me towards this direction of Washington, D.C. So I left my job in 08, I guess it was 09, uh, spring of 09. And uh, people were like, man, we're kind of in the middle of a recession. Is this a good idea? (laughs) Uh, But I knew that, you know, God had called me. He kind of put me some signposts of, uh, you know, for instance, I'd paid off my tuition. I'd paid off my car and some other things that didn't have any debt. Um, And so was like, okay, this is what it feels like what God's calling me to do. And had some good contacts from Focus, of course, to move into D.C. But yeah, arrived out here, did a lot of informational interviews at first, talked to someone at Heritage Foundation early on, and they said, hey, you should go on Capitol Hill, get to know how the legislative process works, and that whole process down, you know, of bills and influence and everything that goes on. And then if you try to go off the hill to, to Heritage or wherever, you'll be more helpful and more useful to people. So I did that. I worked for two different congressional offices first in an internship and then more of a fellowship that was paid. And then from there, that was about a year or so. And then from there, I worked at Heritage Foundation. So mm. the same person I did the inter- informational interview with, I ended up in their marketing team and uh, communications team. And so that takes us to my time at Heritage, which was about four years and uh, loved it. Ultimately jumped from there to a pro-life organization in the area, uh, especially that was doing, was enabling me to do the communications work because that you know, really more the uh, the writing and reporting and, and the editing that I enjoyed doing, you know, they had a, a position open that was like an editorial role and would be working with about a dozen different writers around the nation, people who are writing about pro-life issues and adoption and foster care. And, you know, certainly the uh, they're, they're an anti-abortion group, no question, pro-life. But uh, they saw it, I think, in a broad sense, and they continue to. It's a group uh, bound for life uh, that, uh, that is often praying at the Supreme Court. Yep. If you know, if you've ever seen the pictures of the red life tape, folks who pray out there silently, that is down for life. So I worked for them for a couple of years, probably two and a half, three years, loved it. And then just realized that uh, I could jump into more of a freelance type role through some of the contacts I made and uh, get to write very broadly about a number of things and uh, that it could work out well. And uh, that's what I've been doing since that point, which would have been, um, I think, the start of the Trump administration, the 2016. 16 I'm not yep. mistaken. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So it's spring of 2016. So it's been now for, you know, five years, I guess now of uh, 
of that sort of work. And that's been, that's been great. So now how do you like, I'm, I'm going to go back and pick on you for one comment. Sure. Uh, kind of a recession you said about 2008, nine. I thought that was funny. <laughs> that, that's the understatement <laughs> of the year. And you had the courage to move from, if I understand it correctly, Colorado Springs to Washington, DC during the height of that recession, right? It's true. Yes. So, yep. so uh, I, I guess youth, youth is enabling in, in a situation like that. And you know, a lesson for, for all of us, and uh, you, you sort of made this comment, uh, sort of parenthetically tangential to your point, you, you talked about being out of debt. And, uh, what I heard you say is I did the right things financially so that I was nimble and could make that move. And so I don't think the ordinary person could have done so maybe financially during that time. Well, I appreciate that. I don't, I don't know that I'm great with money, but, uh, <laughs> and I, I, uh, appreciate speaking. I'm sure we could probably talk on a more financial level about different things I could be doing, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, and any, I do think that the millennial generation, it, it tends to be a little bit risk averse, you know, and that's yeah, my generation. That's true. And that I, is so true, you know, and I think we, that's something we have to deal with. I think it's just a fear issue where we, we have to take big risks sometimes. And, and if God calls you to take a big step, then to do it. Yep. And, uh, you know, that's the case. We're in getting married out here and meeting my wife and you just have to take, take risks. And I just, you know, I mean, you, you look at the figures and the social science of lesser dating going on in the millennial generation, lesser ultimately marriages. And right. I'm sure there's a number of factors at play there. Uh, you know, fewer people having children now, especially now in this, uh, you know, COVID era, post COVID, they see that as a, as a great burden and a great cost potentially. But, you know, having come from a large family, my dad always said, God provides you know, uh, for the next child. And, uh, you know, so I just try to believe that and count on, you know, where, where the Lord would, would direct in that regard. So, well, what a blessing to, I did not know the number of siblings that you had, <laughs> and I did not know that you grew up in what sounds like the, the I mean, uh, no household is ever perfect, but the perfect household for homeschooling. You have a dad who's a physician who can cover math and the sciences, and you have a mom who was an English teacher, I believe you said. So, Wow, did you have uh, uh, an advantage uh, being homeschooled in that in that culture in that environment? Yeah, no, no question. I'm very thankful for it, and I think I don't know. I don't think homeschooling is for everyone. I'm I'm definitely someone who believes that you know maybe even my wife and I we may pursue private schooling or public schooling for our kids. We don't we're not really there yet. One's two, and one is uh, right. eight nine months here. Right. But uh, at any rate, it was a unique unique blessing for sure. Well. I want to shift gears and really pick your brain because it, it is uh, a, not a common occasion for me to have as a guest a, a journalist on Relentless Truth. And I'd, I'd love to just get you to talk generally for just a few minutes about the state of journalism in America because you're uniquely capable of doing this. I, I want to hear more about what it's like to do the work that you do where you're you have some independence and, and you're working with, uh, with, you know, on different platforms with different companies. And could you just opine a little bit about the state of journalism in America compared to maybe what it was, what it once was, and, and maybe talk about the direction you see it going in? Sure. Well, I did hear your recent interview with Mr. James Rosen, correct? Um, yep. I'm not uh, necessarily, you know, that's not my degree of necessarily in journalism, I will say. And so I... I've written quite a bit for a number of sites. You mentioned the stream, the Federalist. Uh, there's also a few that would might be more, you know, Christianity Today, certainly a very high standard journalism there. 
religion and politics is another one that's uh, a journalism outfit. And I went a lot, written some larger pieces for them and other months long and even year long type research projects sometimes. Yeah. Providence magazine as well. So, you know, I, I think, um, I think we've all seen certainly the polarization happen in journalism. No question. I think that the, the Trump era was certainly a shakeup for a lot of things. And uh, not, not all of that was in any way bad. I think, you know, I, so as someone who certainly, like I said, has a lot of pro-life convictions and believes in human dignity, you know, you might say from womb to tomb that there were some aspects of policy and things that happened during that era that were extremely positive. I think that in the realm that I'm in, which is conservative journalism to a degree and also religion reporting, so Christian-based outlets, etc., I think you do see that polarization playing out. You know, there might be different stories that I would have pitched to editors regarding issues of, you know, race and ethnicity and, and racial reconciliation. And some of the angles I might have that I think would be challenging might, uh, I kind of saw some rejection on that and didn't always see people want to want to, want to post that. I did an interview with uh, David French, had the opportunity to talk to him, who is, I think, a very wise man, somebody that we should be tuned into listening to, and had a hard time getting that published, actually, at some of the outlets that I work with. Um, just because he was at the time, you know, and continues to be, I think, a critic of former President Trump and, you know, was asking some questions. And I think from a moral viewpoint and a moral lens that we should be considering. So I'm not thinking he has all the answers and that, you know, there aren't good rebuttals, I'm sure, to make to those arguments. But I believe we're, you know, the American model is a, is a, a free marketplace of ideas, you know? And right. I think particularly, I would think conservatives should be championing free speech and not trying to shut down perspectives that might make them uncomfortable. And so, you know, I'd actually go to that question of the um, issues of, of race and ethnicity. I think it's a really important issue and honestly kind of a blind spot um, on the right on some of these issues. So for instance, when I went from heritage to down for life, that was an, another kind of a risk situation for me. It was leaving a a significant paycheck to a group that was smaller and that would be a bit of a cut. But I knew that I felt that God was calling me to do that. And, you know, I did that for a few years and actually ended up talking to a pro-life leader named Jill Stanick, former nurse. And I believe she now works with Susan B. Anthony list, but really wise woman who's been in the pro-life movement for a long time. And she had a conversation with me and said, Hey, you know, I'm really glad that you left your role at heritage to invest your talents in the pro-life cause. I, I really think that your voice matters in this whole thing. And so I felt the same, feel the same way as I look back on it on this issue of uh, wanting to elevate and talk about these issues of, of race and just those entrenched issues that are there and us not always being willing to address them, I don't think, in a really helpful way. So people always ask me, why do you even care about these issues? Where What were some significant things that have really gotten you interested in the last few years? And one of those was actually over the weekend of July 4th, 2016. So it was a very significant weekend because you had – a few different shootings happened of, of unarmed black men. Alton Sterling in, in Baton Rouge was one of them. A gentleman named Philando Castile in Minnesota. And so, you know, this was a situation where, you know, both those situations, really the, the situation with Alton Sterling was first. I believe it was early in the week, like say a Tuesday. And uh, I was looking and it was just a horrific situation. The, the video footage was spreading online. And this was, of course, over the July 4th weekend, Independence Day. And so, so few out, everybody seemed to be on autopilot. I was actually looking for wise Christian voices who, who cover these issues, you know, Tony Evans and or, or Wellington Boone or 
you know, some of these different uh, Christian voices out there that often do address some of these things and just say, well, where, where's the voice that's out there talking about it? And everybody was kind of like Happy Independence Day, just had flag waving on right. their website, kind of unfortunate, and ultimately found a gentleman in uh, Missouri, Jonathan Tremaine Thomas, who is uh, now living in Ferguson with his family, and he had some really wonderful wisdom to share on these issues. But then, so then a few days, uh, the Toledo Castile incident happens in Minnesota, and then there starts to be these protests and things happening across the nation. Well, uh, Dallas is where I'm from, you know, and so I was watching the events of that occurred Thursday evening of that week, where there was a protest that was peaceful. There was a lone gunman though who was, you know, watching this rally from afar, and I, he I shoots down well. five officers. You know, five officers in, in Dallas, downtown Dallas. Just you know, horrific scene. And I have siblings who are both National Guard and military. So this definitely hit close to home. And, you know, to see people in uniform like that gun down was just horrific. And I do think that President Obama honored their memory well in the, in the speeches that he gave. But the thing was, within the next morning, all across my social media feed and probably most people who are conservative, it was all Blue Lives Matter. You know, that was the message that was going out. And I just thought, well, we missed. We're not addressing those two unjust incidents of, of Alton Sterling and Flando Castile that sparked this in the first place. That's suddenly become, you know, not even talked about and discussed yep. uh, in the midst of this, all these other, you know, murders that have happened. And so I just recall posting something that said, hey, you know, the deaths of these two men, Flando Castile and, and Alton Sterling, they were, they were unjust. And I don't know all the details and I know investigations are ongoing, but it was just interesting how uh, within a few hours of that, a few friends of mine who were you know, of minority ethnicity, et cetera, they reached out and said, hey, thank you. They said it means so much more when someone who looks like you says that than, you know, necessarily just just coming from the minority community. Yeah. And so for me, I began to read more of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., began to read other Christian authors like Jamar Tisby and others and learned a lot in that space. And I do think it's an issue where there's learning to do, I think, among in the majority here. And so I do try to spotlight that where I can and look for places to kind of discuss those issues and, and, you know, open, hopefully the gates to say, Hey, there, there maybe are a broader set of, of voices here that we're not always listening to uh, on these, these issues. So I hope that uh, answered some it of your does. question and, uh, does. you know, so. Well, and you know, uh, don't sell yourself short. You and I uh, bumped into each other when uh, in response to uh, this documentary called uh, pray away. And we'll, we'll maybe get to that later, but I find you to be, uh, Josh, a very balanced journalist, fair-minded. I know of your very conservative, solid Christian views, but uh, you you also take a, a, a very good, neutral approach to your journalism. I, I want to just ask you, though, in the context of, of some of those posts that you're talking about where you you said the right thing and maybe pushed back a little bit on, on, on a narrative that, that often comes from the far conservative right. Have you bumped into along the way any any elements of cancel culture? And I and I, I, I didn't have that in my plan list of questions, but it but it, it popped into my head as you were just talking. That culture, that's a whole new thing to me. And I find it fascinating. But did you get pushback from from another element? I know you said you had a couple of people who reached out and commended you. Uh, but have you ever experienced that in social media for any position you've taken on anything? Oh, for sure. No question. I mean, you talk about the prayer away story and we could definitely get into that, but that's an issue where you talk about these issues of how some different Christian ministries want to discuss issues of, of LGBT 
desires that may be unwanted from certain people and they, right. in a counseling level of adults wanting to, to get counseling that they would want to, um, you know, have the freedom to, to pursue that. And suddenly this is being, uh, made illegal. So, you know, there's, I think I, though, I see it from both the right and the left. Like I mentioned, there are some different outlets that have rejected pieces that I've written regarding issues of, of race and ethnicity because they felt that I elevated maybe some perspectives that made them uncomfortable, but certainly uh, no question that, so that would be on the right, but on the left, no, you know, there's a number of issues, whether it's the issues of sexuality and marriage, you know, I think really since the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court, where same-sex marriage was legalized in the nation, the way that Orthodox Christian teaching, you know, would, would look at the issue of marriage is different than how than the state now in the United States regards it. And so that creates an inherent conflict. And uh, there are all manner of contexts where that plays out, you know, whether that's adoption services right. and, you know, Christian ministries that want to continue to place children with a, a family that might be with a, a mother and a father, you know, obviously the wedding industry, they've had so much uh, issue there. So I see cancel culture operating on both of those. I do think it is good to be distinct and specific about what you're talking about, because it can kind of be painted with a broad brush and say, all the left is involved in cancel culture. But I don't think that that's true. I mean, I think, right, um, right. you know, you look at someone like Robert George and, and Cornell West who go out and do these events together. Robert George, of course, being on the right and conservative, Cornell West being on the left and very much a liberal, but a, a classical liberal in the sense that he wants to, to have an open uh, square of public square of open debate. And, exactly. and so I think that some of the more troubling aspects of what you might call cancel culture, again, it's not really a term that I, I don't think I like very much because I think that it's better to drill down in, into the specifics. Right. The, uh, I think Amazon, of course, banning books is pretty egregious. <laughs> you know, that's pretty incredible. I mean, honestly, we could just go through this story of what Anne has faced. And I know you've interviewed her recently, but where she's been, her ministry, Restored Hope Network, has been banned from Facebook and banned from Twitter and not able to get on the social platform. Yep. You know, Anne, even Anne, have a page. Is, Anne is the executive director of, uh, Anne Polk is the executive director of uh, of uh, Restored Hope, uh, which is uh, the ministry Josh is referring to there. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, of course, out of Colorado Springs. And yep. uh, so, you know, those are egregious issues, and it does show you the inc- increasing influence of big tech. You know, I, I, I'm very much not a conspiracy theory person. I don't I traffic in that, and especially right. in the COVID area, era, I've been one to shoot <laughs> down a lot of unfortunate anti-vax uh, vaccine okay. and otherwise kind of things that have gone on there but you, um, you won't see me opining on uh <laughs> on, on vaccine mandates or uh, anything <laughs> of the sort either for the same reason yeah but i do uh, in the case of big tech i have friends who are very had a lot of investment in in silicon valley and know the complexity of that world and, and the generations really of work that have gone on in since the 80s and 90s in that in that world and would say there is absolutely an element here that is trying to shut down the open marketplace of ideas, free speech, et cetera. And right. we should be very skeptical about our, our data that we're giving these, these companies and using their platforms, et cetera. So that we should all be very wary yeah. of, of Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, and realize that there are livelihoods that depend on those platforms and they can very easily be taken away, you know, by the corporations that are, that are pulling the strings. So uh, that's exactly right. Uh, well, I, I want to respect your time, and I'm going to ask you just just maybe we could just do a lightning round here, and I want you to take the time to answer thoroughly, but I want to get to a couple of things that we haven't even talked about yet. One 
is going to catch you off guard maybe just a little bit. And that is you write for a diverse audience and you, you write for independent churches. You know, your audience includes Baptist, Methodist, uh, charismatic, reformed and Catholic and sort of everything in between. How do you approach that where you, you write for such a diverse audience? You have, you have a nice way uh, in, from a style standpoint. And how, how, do you, how do you think about that as you're writing for, for a broad audience like that? I appreciate that. Yeah. I think that sometimes being aware of divides is, is, a, is a good way to hopefully respect people on either side of it at first. And so I do see that there are many divides in the, in the church, you know, and even just within the, the evangelical church, you know, of, of Baptist, mainline, charismatic, sure. yep. etc., And of course, Roman Catholic, that's been a new thing for me coming out here to the East Coast, frankly. I mean, I had a, a few friends growing up who were Catholic, but uh, it's much more dominant here on the East Coast, and right. especially in this area. And it's like, if you're involved in the pro-life movement, you know, the March for Life is easily 85% Catholic. Right. Um, so you, if, if you're going to be involved in that, I've interviewed so many Catholic leaders now since then. So, yeah, I think that I, in a sense, I know what I believe, and I know what my core, you know, beliefs are about the gospel and about ultimate questions. Right. The essentials, of, uh, if you will. Of, yeah, of theology, heaven and hell, and, and different things. But I also... And respectful of people who have other other beliefs, and I think there's an aspect of uh, leaving it to the Holy Spirit to a degree. You know, I think that there is an aspect of, of where we we want to be uh, a witness for Christ, and when and and have a an answer at the ready when people ask questions. Right. And I, but at the same time, it's not necessarily some kind of a promotional campaign. I don't think that God's asking us to put on for His exactly. for the truth. You know, I think and, that the and, Holy Spirit is the one who speaks to hearts and. He doesn't, um, he doesn't charge us with getting them in a headlock and saying, you know, come over to this position on a worship style issue or, or some other peripheral issue. Exactly. And, and my, it's interesting because I do think I've learned this quite a bit from my parents because they have very deep connections in Israel. One of their, one of their passions in life is certainly uh, promoting and, and uh, you know, doing benevolent work on behalf of Israel. And they are deeply involved in the Jewish community in Dallas. They have probably eight or 10 different rabbis and people that they are very good friends with and people and Orthodox Jews, conservative Jews, et cetera, all the different streams of Judaism they are very familiar with and um, right. great, good, good, close friends with. And people do question that sometimes. I have seen those conversations happen where people are wondering, well, are, you know, are you evangelizing or, you know, but uh, they're just like, we don't have a hidden agenda. And, you know, when we're asked questions, we are, the first to answer those and but they just really love people and love relationship and you know believe that the image of god is in every person and that, that god is doing miracles and we don't always know the larger story that god's telling but you know they'll be very firm to say that people come to salvation through jesus christ alone they're not in any way preaching some different gospel but it's i think there's an aspect of uh, like you say leading it to the holy spirit uh, there so i hope that that yeah that does. That. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's, it, it, that's just helpful, a, helpful pers- perspective. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I do think that there is a lot to learn. And the more we learn, the more we can be respectful. So I try to learn about the Baptist denomination. I certainly have, I, I did, I, part of my advantage, I think, is that frankly, I I was, we went partly to Baptist churches when I grew up. We went, we went to some Methodist churches. We went to all flavor of non-denominational churches and charismatic. And so I have seen church done in a lot of different ways. In, in, in terms of evangelical and now even Catholic. So maybe that helps to a degree that I've had that broad experience. Well, just, just to quickly reveal my inner geek, 
I want to know, I, I visited DC several times and usually that was during, uh, typically during my banking career, my daughter and I went on a senior trip there for her and, and looked at all the tourist areas. But usually I would just go right in and go right to the Department of Treasury and try to get them to do something related to uh, something in some policy issue relative to banking. But as a journalist, DC seems like a harsh place and you've been there for a while. What's, what's that like to work there in, in DC? live and work there? Yeah, D.C. is certainly kind of a, a dog-eat-dog world. I almost feel like I, because I was on Capitol Hill, you know, Heritage Foundation, their offices are right there yeah. um, near the Supreme Court, you right. know, went on there every morning for those four plus years that I worked there. And so it is, I think it's a difficult place to get around to a degree. You have to use the Metro and parking and all that is a, is a, is a disaster. And uh, <laughs> it is a very competitive world. You know, when I did that year and a half or so, on Capitol Hill, even just among fellowship and interns, I think I kind of turned heads because people were like, well, you're like, goodness, what is it? 25, 26. And you're, you know, doing this in just this fellowship thing that, you know, right. Uh, you know, and I'd saved up and so it was able to pay my bills or whatever, but they were like, what do you, you know, what, what, what are you doing here? And so there is a competitive environment here. There is a environment of, we have to get the scoop and be the first to print rather than get the details. That's certainly, I think, the case with a lot of journalism, and I think especially as, as journalism has moved online, that being being the first, being the scoop is the all-important thing, you know, more so than always getting the details right. So right. I tend to be one who wants to get the details right and tell it a little slower, tell it uh, in a way that's going to, uh, you know, get you the right perspective and the right color to the story. So, yeah, yeah I guess I'm just thankful that I have been with the outlets that I'm at right now, and I, I get that opportunity to tell a lot of different stories. Well, have that variety and also, you know, have, uh, you know, have gained some of the contacts that I've gained that, you know, I mean, that enable me to kind of hopefully tell a different perspective sometimes than you than you get always. So, well, speaking of your work, I want to pick your brain because uh, this is a selfish question. I'm going to geek out for a minute and ask you. I'm interested in your writing on on films and TV, and you you do a lot of work there. You're you're an expert on this topic, and this is a question that I hear. I hear this sentiment from my students and their families, and I have this question myself. Where do we go? Where do Christian families who care about family films, uh, you know, know, as as I think I mentioned to you before, you know, I'm not exactly a Quaker, but I like to have a resource to find good films. Where do we go to do that? Give us some resources or some thoughts there and talk about your top five films from this past year just quickly, if you would. I'd love to. Uh, thank you, John, for that. And I, yeah, you know, we say that culture is, is upstream of politics, you know, that uh, it's ultimately Indeed. these ideas of, of that, we, that we see in the films and in storytelling that kind of filter down ultimately to politics. And so you can play at the, the back end of the process and just look at laws and look at court cases and things, but I tend to think, okay, the ideas and of stories and of what we're seeing in film and TV today are probably going to ultimately play out in the coming years. And so, you know, I, I write about movies and TV so that I can write about any topic and any issue imaginable because, you know, these all play out on the screen. And so I, I love that I get to do that. And uh, a few resources I would point people to before launching, launching into my own little list of top five here would be, let's see. So I used to work for Focus on the Family, and, and I wrote actually a good bit, a little bit, for, for Plugged In, and that's still a wonderful outlet. They do great work there. You know, I know that people just think, oh, well, they're just, you know, looking at the 
the content and how many swear words or whatever were said. And if you, it's not really true if you look at their reviews, especially once you get down to kind of the bottom after they give you the list of content, then they're going to give you a conclusion. Yeah. And those paragraphs are always the ones to kind of look at and understand, okay, how are things playing out? And they have a lot of very serious people who know film review, you know, people who work at other publications and, and do call out a lot of interesting themes and, and aspects of filmmaking and, and uh, you know, TV work and what they do. So I love that outlet. Still definitely watch what they do. And I think it's helpful to understand where there's concerns from a family standpoint. Right. Decentfilms.com is another great site that's run by uh, Stephen Gradenus, who is a Catholic film reviewer. But he's in the National Critics Registry, I think is what it is. But he's, he's sort of very much a prominent reviewer on the faith side of things. And there's very few of his that I disagree with. You know, he's, he's a very serious reviewer. He's somebody I've frankly learned from, I think, just by reading his material about cinematography, about a number of things. So decentfilms.com. And, and he writes for so many outlets, he kind of collects it all there. And you can go out and find it. In terms of the top five films of, of, of 2021 so yeah, far, um, yeah. I, of course, I hope to get to a top 10 list, but uh, I'll, uh, you know, we're still seeing what's going to play out here over the Christmas season. I think there's a number of good ones coming out, but I'll start us out with number one, which I believe is, is Blue Miracle. This is a film that's on Netflix. Really rare for Netflix to fund something like this, this a faith and family film like this. If you've not seen it, it is really, really good. A story of, of foster care and adoption that takes place in Mexico um, was filmed out there, parts of it, and then was also filmed in the Caribbean. But uh, Dennis Quaid stars in it. There's also a young star named Jimmy Gonzalez who really kind of carries it, a uh, Latino man, and really deals with this orphanage there and this boat kind of competition that occurs of a, of a fishing competition where, mm-hmm. you know, they, they go out and uh, ultimately, if, if they can you know, catch the, get, get the big one, bag the big one, this, this essentially team of orphans. And then you have this with Jimmy Gonzalez, who is kind of their orphan care kind of director. Dennis Quaid in the film is this kind of old grizzled, you know, uh, fisherman who doesn't, but is kind of forced into this situation with them. And basically they, they kind of go out together and ultimately bag this, you know, a, a massive, you know, Marlin fish. So it's, it's beautifully told, really some unexpected twists in that movie. So Blue Miracle, one you, you really should see. Keep going down the list here, and I'll, I kind of uh, streaming is kind of my focus. So you'll see a lot of streaming services for sure. But there's a couple that are theatrical. Luca is on Disney Plus, latest from Pixar. Great coming of age story, a little bit of uh, fantasy in there, but mostly it's really just a story of, of friendship. And I think what's fun about this film is that you know there's not a a superhero or a princess or a wizard anywhere in sight in this movie. It's just about two boys and their friendship, and their uh, this young girl as well, who kind of they become this sort of triad of friends and defeating the bully and it's, it's a fun little small town story it's from an italian director and it really celebrates the italian culture in, in a really beautiful way so definitely would would very much suggest luca if you haven't seen it I'm, i think a lot of people probably who are families have third would be the courier which is on prime video so amazon prime video this is a great film got very little attention but it's just a, a great spy thriller this is with benedict cumberbatch and it, it takes place in the cold war era cumberbatch is actually a businessman who gets recruited into basically the CIA and, and MI6 to kind of spy on the Russians and, and do this covert operation during the Cold War era. Really well told story. It kind of, the third act of that movie just kicks into a whole different gear. And so it's, it's a very different story almost once you get to the third act of it. But, uh, you know, just a, a powerful story, you know, and, and I think if you love kind of classic historical stuff, that's great. Four, I would say, is In the Heights. 
this is kind of the year of musicals, you might say. I think maybe 10 musicals or so, eight or 10 musicals released this year. It's, it's ridiculous. So yeah. in my opinion, I think this is probably the best of them. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical that was written before and done before Hamilton, which is a, a film that I love and a musical that I love. But uh, this is a great one that really spotlights Latino culture, uh, gives you the sort of variety and flavor of that that plays out in Washington Heights in, in New York City. Beautiful story of kind of a, uh, you know, a love story that plays out, but also a story about family and uh, about intergenerational sort of stuff. I mean, honestly, Lin-Manuel had multiple musicals. There's another one called Vivo that was an animated one that's on Netflix. And it's a very, it plays out similar. You can kind of see almost the influences of In the Heights in that animated version. But I think this is a great movie. You really should go and see it. It's, uh, it's on HBO Max. Just a great, a great musical. Number five would be Respect which is the Aretha Franklin story, yep. you know, issues of race and ethnicity play out there, you know, and, and frankly, issues of, of church abuse and spiritual abuse and, and a lot of interesting things. I wrote about this for the Roy's report for Julie Roy's, who is an editor that I work with closely. So such a, an important film. And I think it didn't get the notice that it deserves, but it's yep. a movie that people should check out. There's a movie coming out on Christmas that I do want to mention uh, that is called American underdog. The Irwin brothers, who are this great, you know, these guys who've done several movies like I Still Believe and I Can Only Imagine, they were given a four times bigger budget than they've ever worked with. And they've, they've got big stars, Zachary Levi, who is known as the superhero Shazam, who plays Warner uh, in this film. And then uh, Anna Paquin, who's an Oscar winner, plays uh, his wife, Brenda Warner. So this is a great inspirational movie. I think it's going to be huge and it's going gonna, it's gonna to elevate their work, I think, to a much greater audience. So that's out on Christmas, American Underdog. Folks should see it. I plan to go with my family. We've already gotten to see it early, but uh, it, is, it is a very, very good movie. That's, uh, you know, kind of uh, Kurt Warner's whole journey into the NFL. So, yep, that's a great story. Josh, thank you. I have taken more of your time than uh, I should have. I appreciate your generosity. I can hear the passion in your voice when you talk about these movies. And I appreciate so much the... I've just got to say this, the, the principled approach you take, the values that you personally have, and yet the balanced approach that you take as you let them inform your work. And so for those of you who aren't familiar, look up Josh Shepard, follow him on uh, social media. He's a blessing to many of us who've gotten to know him and his work. So thank you for being here. It's been a rich blessing. I appreciate it, John. Love the podcast. I'll keep listening. And, uh, you know, yeah, folks can find me yeah, at Josh and Shep on Twitter. I have a page on a site called Authory, so you can kind of see all my work there and even get like a weekly email that, that goes out with my work. So Terrific. Thanks well, so much. Well, thank you. And uh, folks, if you would uh, like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth, uh, we will resume our discussion of the economy next time. Uh, quite, quite a change from this rich blessing we've had with Josh. Uh, we'll go back to uh, talking about economic indicators and how they inform our lives. So it is good to be with you. For more information, please go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth 
with John Warren.